0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Let This Radicalize You, Organizing in the Revolution of Reciprocal Care by Mariam Kaba and Kelly Hayes. What fuels and sustains activism and organizing when it feels like our worlds are collapsing? Let This Radicalize You is a practical and imaginative resource for activists and organizers building power in an era of destabilization and catastrophe. As Naomi Klein says of the book, this is a prophetic work, one that will be pressed with great urgency into the palms of friends and comrades, kin and colleagues, and anyone else ready to rise up against machineries of mass death. With great clarity and generosity— Hayes and Kaba model how participants in movements can be tough on systems while being gentle with one another and themselves, nurturing a counterculture of care as an integral part of building the next world. Find Let This Radicalize You by Miriam Kaba and Kelly Hayes at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is my interview with returning guest Quinn Slobodian. Last time he was here, we discussed his book, Globalists The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, which told the history of neoliberalism as a process of building supranational institutions to protect capitalism from democracy. You may be familiar with that episode since a huge number of you downloaded it. If you have not heard it yet, I will post a link in the show notes. Today, we're discussing Quinn's new book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. This book is about radical libertarians, including anarcho-capitalists like Murray Rothbard, who envision a world where the nation-state is broken into smaller units, a world of micropolities where capital mobility ensures that forms of governance by private property and contract outcompete popular sovereignty or socialism. But this isn't just a book about ideas, though it is certainly a book about ideas in part. It's also a book about how our world already looks a lot more like that anarcho-capitalist fever dream than we might have imagined. It's a world, Quinn explains, that's full of zones. Places where rules tailor-made for capitalists prevail over the ordinary laws of the nation state. From London's Canary Wharf, Dubai's Jebel Ali port, and Saudi Arabia's Neom, to Singapore, Hong Kong, and Shenzhen. And the internet, many anarcho-capitalists believe, is a new frontier of free real estate available for enclosure. But I do need to ask you for money before we get rolling. Because we have no paywalls and are dedicated to making every episode available to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay, we depend on support from listeners who can afford to pitch in to do so at patreon.com slash the dig. One consequence of this model is that every week I must rewrite this portion of my introduction to appeal for your support. But honestly, I don't mind doing that extra 15 minutes of work because it's an opportunity for me to communicate to you about how the dig works and what it takes to put the show together and keep it running. It means a lot to me that we can fund this show overwhelmingly through voluntary listener contributions. It's an unusual model, and it says a lot about you, our listeners, that it works. For listeners in the US, we also have mugs, tote bags, and books to send you in the mail. Listeners everywhere who contribute any amount at all get our wonderful weekly newsletter emailed to your inbox. Please contribute now. It really does mean a lot, and it's what keeps the show up and running. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There's a link in the show notes. Click it now and donate. Okay, here's Quinn Slobodian, professor of the history of ideas at Wellesley College. He's the author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, and, most recently, the book we're discussing today, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Quinn Slobodian, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you. Let's start by defining some things. Your book is about a set of radical, libertarian, authoritarian capitalists, including many self-described anarcho-capitalists. And it's also about a world that's been shaped in those people's vision far more than we might imagine, a world that's riven with zones of all sorts. But before we get to that world and, and all of its zones, let's talk about these people and and the world that they want to create? Who are these libertarians and what do they want and believe?
1: Well, the people who are at the heart of the book are more radical libertarians or neoliberals than the kind that we might usually encounter. So the last book I wrote figured heavily with people like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and the like. Those folks do make an appearance in this book. I'm kind of more interested in the, in the neglected group of as you say, so-called anarcho-capitalists who, rather than believing that democracy can be sort of tamed and reined in and constrained within certain legislative bonds, they believe that democracy can and should be done away with altogether. So they have a, a belief in a kind of a pure market order within which everything is organized through private contracts, private actors, insurance companies, arbitration companies, all displace entirely the function of the ballot box or representative government. So that group is relatively small, but vocal. And I would say kind of increasingly influential and important over the last few decades, especially with the kind of rapidly accelerating financialization of our economy, the rise of the tech industry, the emergence of things like cryptocurrencies, The idea of a kind of a privately ordered reality, I think, has become more tangible and attractive to a lot of people. So the people at the heart of the book are those anarcho-capitalists kind of wandering through the last few decades and being attracted to the baubles and sheen of different versions of market utopia around the world.
0: What is the difference or relationship between radical libertarians and neoliberals? Are they sometimes the same people?
1: Well, it's a fraught question. The thing that I devoted a lot of attention to in my last book was to argue that, as many others have, that it's not helpful to think of neoliberals wanting to do away with the state altogether, right? That neoliberalism is best understood as a kind of evolving set of solutions to the problem of democracy, and that the state plays an important proactive role in encasing the market from challenges to the market order, and in often rolling out new kind of policies that produce more market-friendly outcomes and realities and make less likely more redistributive or socialist outcomes and realities. So that book was really about more like this mainline neoliberalism, which one can associate with Hayek, Friedman. We can think of the kind of construction of supranational institutions like the World Trade Organization and parts of the European Union as attempts to kind of encode this version of neoliberalism in the real world, or that's how it was seen by them. Within that kind of big tent of neoliberalism, which in my work and following the work of others, I associate with this thought tradition around the Mont Pelerin society, there are these kind of radical libertarians who are more often at the margins who, as I just said, sort of think that the state can be abolished altogether. So Because they are kind of imminent critics of neoliberalism, right? They are like within the world of the neoliberal religion, but constitute a kind of radical sect within it. It's hard to know where to put them. The same way I think that one wouldn't know where to put kind of breakaway sects of Christianity or Islam, right? When they they take issue with the mainline version of the ideology, they sort of are of it but against it in different ways. So the, the people in my book often would use neoliberalism as a kind of a curse word or a slur <laughs> word, not dissimilarly to the way that the left would, right? They would see someone like Hayek as having betrayed the tradition of the market by conceding that one can have you know regular elections or some degree of compensation for extreme
0: hardship. They prefer Mises.
1: They prefer Mises and they, uh, yeah, and, and a particular reading of Mises. So this is something I discovered in the, in the course of writing this book is like, it is, can only be compared to kind of religious or doctrinal debates, or I suppose debates around like Trotskyism and Stalinism <laughs> on the left, in the sense that people get extremely triggered by which translation you use, which sentence you translate, which paragraph you focus on. And in some cases, I found myself kind of like stumbling into this viper's nest of like inter-Nicene mesian debates without even knowing i was doing so so it got very emotional <laughs> but i do think that even with mises mises read one way is just as is similar to hayek in the sense that he also doesn't want to do away with the state he believes in the kind of the usefulness and the utility in some ways or at least the kind of utilitarian function of democracy in ways that the pu- more purists here we would probably point to Rothbard rather than Mises indeed believe in the possibility of a truly stateless
0: order. We'll get into Rothbard and other thinkers in more detail, but first I want to outline a little the important portion of your book which is about how the world looks a lot more like what these thinkers want than we might have thought. And you write, quote, "The world of nations is riddled with zones" what generally speaking is a zone and how does it challenge the ways that we typically think about the nation state and its sovereignty?
1: Well, technically speaking, zones are these jurisdictions within national territory that are ring fenced, you know, delimited in terms of size and inside of their borders, they have a different set of laws and regulations than what exists outside. The last 40 plus years, these have been used by often developing countries as a way to incentivize foreign investors to come into the country who might, you know, be otherwise dubious about making an investment in, you know, whether it's Indonesia, India, um, South Africa, Botswana, if they're told, listen, within this space, we will make sure that licensing happens quickly, the taxes are light, that you'll be able to have full foreign ownership, et cetera. It's a way to make mobile capital more confident about where it's putting its money. The zone has a very distinct kind of biography or kind of history, which many other people have tracked in detail and upon whose work I I rely in my own book there. And it has a few different genesis points. One of them is the foreign trade zone, which is an American invention. Dara Orenstein, the American studies professor, has written a great book. About the American foreign trade zones called Out of Stock, which she pitches as a history of the warehouse in American capitalism. And these were set up in the 1930s during the New Deal as basically warehouses, but places usually adjacent to harbors that were considered to be outside of American customs territory. So the advantage of that is you could bring things in there in pieces, for example, and assemble them. And then bring them inside of the united states and not have to pay let's say tariffs or customs on each individual component you just have to pay then customs on the finished product they were also very useful because technically speaking you weren't allowed to do certain kinds of refining of imported oil on american territory so you could do them instead in these foreign trade zones so for almost 100 years the u.s and there are you know hundreds and hundreds of these things across the u.s some of them no bigger than a warehouse places that when you step into them, you're technically out of the kind of tax territory of the United States. They're they're very much used for car assembly and things like that nowadays. Another history which is kind of interesting is around the Shannon Airport in Ireland. So in the early ages of, of transatlantic flight, you couldn't get all the way from, say, New York to London and one tank of gas. You had to refill once and sometimes even twice, which is what made Newfoundland briefly have a kind of an intense small site of cosmopolitan kind of leisure where people would have to get off the plane and wait for their plane to be refueled in uh, in Gander I believe in Newfoundland <laughs> and then it would be on to Ireland which was the the you know the next closest place across the Atlantic and Shannon International Airport was one and such place where there was always people waiting to be for their plane to be refueled there was duty free and so on when the flights could go further the fuel tanks got bigger then Shannon became obsolete but the sort of entrepreneurial thinkers there in the 50s already were thinking about ways that they could take advantage of this sort of extra territoriality that they've been granted effectively as as an airport and so they started doing things like manufacturing you know with without the same regulations as the the surrounding country they started warehousing things and storing things that could be then you know kept outside of the space of the country itself so that idea of like perforating the territory to allow for usually lower taxation lower regulations lower labor laws also had places that sprang up early in puerto rico in the 1950s and 60s and taiwan in the 1960s but it really didn't take off if you look at a kind of a graph of these zones which eventually were just called special economic zones really didn't take off until the late 1970s which is when china adopted the zone as kind of the way with which it would open up its domestic economy so the most famous certainly is shenzhen just across the water from hong kong but the zones multiplied very quickly and they were fascinating sort of laboratories for Recommodification of land, recommodification of labor, right? The, basically, the reversal of communism in most of its tangible ways, but in very, very small pockets of land. So it was a way to not do, you know, all at once, overnight shock therapy. Instead, you do this kind of hydraulic thing where you allow foreign investment and you allow a foreign capital in, but only in very small places, and, and you sort of allow the different zones to effectively compete with one another for mobile investment and so on. So China would be the place where you really see the zone take off. The other place that I talk about in the book is in the Gulf, specifically United Arab Emirates and specifically Dubai, specifically Dubai in part because they don't have oil of their own, nor do they have gas. Abu Dhabi has the oil and Qatar has the gas. So they had to figure out something else to do. And what they figured out was adopting this technology of the zone. The Jebel Ali free zone was the is still the most famous one. And inside of this set space, they said, you know, foreign companies can come in. They can own territory. They can do it. They can have access to our labor force. They can bring in workers from outside and as you can see that, you know, what the zones then become are sort of places where a lot of the usual ideas of what a nation state is kind of get suspended, right? I mean, you often have ownership by people who are not from the country. You often have workers there who are working there who aren't necessarily from the country that surrounds them. You have the fiscal obligations and kind of legal obligations that are very different from what's around them. And the tendency, I think, has been to look at this as just kind of a a bit of a freak or an abnormality of the way that global capitalism is operating. But my play in the book is to say two things that one, actually, this is kind of the essence of the way that global capitalism is being organized in the last 40 years or so. These are the places with the highest intensity of manufacturing, the highest intensity of investment, the highest intensity of extraction. And if you look at them in another wave of financial activity as well, and furthermore, they're they're acting as kind of inspirations for other kinds of political imagination. So the, the radical libertarians, the anarcho-capitalists that we started our conversation with are looking at these kind of workaday, kind of banal engineering fixes for capitalism and saying, what if we took that and made that into like a model for society as such? What if we made the zone rather than the nation, rather than the empire, the thing that was how we organized human life.
0: The story of the past half century is often told as as one of the agglomeration of nation-states into these larger supranational bodies, things like the EU or the WTO, the sorts of institutions that you wrote about in Globalists that protect markets from democracy. But this book shows that we've also lived through this breakdown of nation-states into zones and that radical capitalists are obsessed not just with deregulating, the state or or imposing this global check on democracy, but in, in breaking states up into smaller and smaller polities, micro-ordering. How do these two stories work together?
1: Well, I think they do work together. I think rather than being kind of opposites, I think they actually are, they work in symbiosis. I'll use the example of one of the more extreme versions of a special economic zone is the one called Prospera that's been created in Honduras on the island of Roatan off the north coast of Honduras, the Caribbean. This was self-consciously a, a, an attempt to kind of create a miniature Hong Kong in you know a country that has had its challenges of criminality and one-sided relationships with its larger economic neighbors, especially the United States and Canada to the north. And so the idea was, let's sort of, effectively give away part of the territory create a new set of laws to give a pretty extreme form of extraterritorial status to this small patch of land on the one hand that could look like a version of exit or escape right like you're opting out of of the nation you're also opting out of kind of global oversight you're opting out of international institutions and so on but on second glance it actually doesn't look like that at all why because for one thing, the people who are advising there on that place, Prospera, are people who are absolutely plugged into the sort of the top level of sort of global capitalist activity. So it's people from, you know, Ernst & Young, KPMG, the big sort of accounting and auditing agencies. It's people who helped to set up the Dubai International Financial Center. It's people who have experience actually navigating that kind of top level global coding of international economic law, who are also then attuned to the ways that you can take advantage of these small sites as places not to really opt out of or get away from you know, international economic integration, quite the opposite. It's about designing places that are plugged into even more directly networks of international economic integration. Whether of financial services, trade, in some cases even the migration of people, in the sense of of offering citizenship by investment or the ability to have a sort of a second electronic passport. So, in other words, the story that I told in the last book about the emergence of supranational institutions designed to kind of protect global capitalism was shadowed by the whole time the emergence of a kind of galaxy of small scale jurisdictions at the other end of the compass down on ground level as entities that were able to suck in, organize, redirect, reorient money, trade at the most optimum level. So the the world of tax havens, which also comes up in the book, the kind of the second British empires, it's sometimes been called this galaxy of low tax and no tax sites scattered around the world, often in strange islands and in the middle of nowhere, are not kind of working across purposes to what we would call, you know, top level globalization. They're actually the means by which that top level globalization actually operates. But I think you're right. And it was intentional on my part to kind of switch up the scales in this book, because I was very dissatisfied with the way that the narrative was being circulated around 2016 and afterwards, which was this idea that since the Cold War was over, it was just a time of scaling up. Everyone was getting more integrated. You know, sites of economic activity were getting ever larger. And I think there was a kind of a delusion there about what that meant, that that somehow there was an evenness or a kind of a smooth openness that, quote unquote, we were all enjoying And then that was suddenly rudely disrupted in 2016 by the vote to leave the European Union by the UK and the election of Trump and the trade wars that followed. So there was this idea of like, once we were united, and now we have become fragmented again. And that is just bad empirically as a way to describe, I think, what happened in the last few years, but also bad empirically to describe the world that we inhabited before that supposed rupture out of the blue in 2016 so using the work of geographers especially using the work of anthropologists certain kinds of historians it was possible to kind of try to reconstruct this more granular subnational world of enclaves that animates the book to show how in the words of someone like david harvey You know, the way we need to think about power and money in the 21st century is a constant oscillation between the kind of territorial logic of states and the more molecular logic of capital accumulation, that these things are always kind of working with each other in new and often surprising and novel ways. And the creation of these small little places that offer one particular service, here's a place you can go and do a medical experiment without regulation. Here's a place that you can your money without your corporate profits without taxation here's a place that you can sew tags onto underwear while paying someone at pennies an hour these are all sort of signs of the metabolism that happens between i think the world of capital and the world of states so this just says if you look closely enough at a forest floor right you see a lot of variegation that might have once looked like a smooth green space or a smooth brown space the idea here, too, I think, was to look very closely and put this, the kind of territory under the microscope and find all the zones inside of the nation.
0: These radical libertarians do not try to make any sort of argument that some pure form of capitalism is real democracy. These these figures are resolutely and explicitly anti-democratic. And for some, you write, quote, contracts would replace constitutions and people would cease to be citizens of any place only clients of a range of service providers. These would be anti-republics, private ownership and exchange displacing any trace of popular sovereignty. But these figures do argue, I think, for some particular vision of freedom, that one expresses their preferences by exit rather than voice or vote. But first, what is their issue with democracy? We sometimes think of bourgeois democracy as capitalism's natural form of governance. Your your book, though, strongly suggests that this is not always the case. What, what's going on?
1: Well, I think that's where you know it's helpful to think about the world that the Hayek's and the Milton Friedman's inhabited versus the world that the kind of Peter Thiel's and the Pottery Friedman's inhabit and circulate in. I think that it's certainly true that if you think about a world of the mid-20th century, a world of you know, Fordism and large industrial working classes in the global north and the need to kind of organize things at scale such that, you know, you can get the iron ore from the hills into the blast furnaces and then get that steel, you know, down the river to build the bodies of the automobiles or the train cars and then lay the tracks, right? There's a kind of There's a kind of gargantuan organic quality to industrial capitalism that even the kind of Hayek's and Friedman's, although they thought that democracy also was potentially corrosive of the smooth functioning of that machine or that of that kind of, you know, lumbering kind of automaton Polanyi talks about that as a kind of a golem. I think they nonetheless were respectful of the fact that democracy played a necessary legitimating function in keeping kind of collective politics, you know, rumbling along and trundling along. That it was very hard to kind of get rid of the idea of popular sovereignty as the kind of hardware of politics, of the political side of political economy. So it was more about finding kind of institutional fixes to kind of bottle up, hive off, and kind of regulate into smaller boxes the degree to which the popular will could be exerted on the functioning of that clockwork, that grand object that the kind of Fordist capitalist economy was. The thing about my anarcho-capitalist in this book is they're somehow simultaneously both Deeply pre-modern in the way that they think about things, and kind of you know if I can use the term post-modern, in the sense that they don't think about the world through the from the point of view of kind of like mid-century United States or Britain or mid-century Germany. They don't think about the Fordist world or the industrial world as the primary referent. Instead, they kind of think about two very different worlds. They think of the world of the medieval kind of mode of production, or even earlier, like barbarian model of sort of central Europe, or even the kind of Roman or Greek model that, you know, someone like Perry Anderson describes the Roman economy as a slave mode of production in the sense that it was entirely premised on having a large unpaid group of laborers involved who had no political rights whatsoever. Those are the sort of worlds that I think that extremely radical libertarians sort of orient themselves towards. And then into the sort of postmodern or post-Fortis mode, they think about a world of such densely hyperconnected sites of production that things can be done on demand and things can be provided without the need for building up the big apparatus for social reproduction that the Forda state involved, right? Like the welfare state, public education, trade unions, local government, government above that. However, falsely, let it be said at the outset, I think they misperceive reality, but the way they misperceive reality is interesting because of the way that it's symptomatic. I think of way of, a lot of people are misperceiving reality, but it's, it's a way of thinking about the world either is organized at a micro level in the style of the feudal or even pre-feudal world and at the micro level in the form of our sort of futuristic digitally mediated gig economy world. In that way of looking at things, the modern period from the French Revolution of popular sovereignty, sort of breaking through, you know, radicalized by the Haitian Revolution, radicalized by the Civil War and emancipation, radicalized onward into the 20th century, the Soviet Revolution, the Chinese Revolution. These are a series of events that kind of accompanied, in a way, a particular era of, of human production, too, that they see themselves as either before or after in that sense if you're going to reorganize the world at a micro level if that's your dream and it is their dream then democracy ceases to be the kind of necessary legitimizing language for mass politics because it's not what they're proposing is not mass politics they're, they're proposing micro politics and within micro politics different arrangements can function and what makes the this group i think kind of interesting and in some ways productive to think with, is that they are great believers in sort of the diversity of political possibility. Meaning, if you think you want to crack up the United States into 10,000 miniature units, you take for granted, and they will say explicitly that some of those units will be, you know, radically redistributive, some of them will be, you know, 100% direct democracies, some of them will be anarchistic, anarcho-communist in the left sense. Some will be fascistic and white supremacist. Others might be black supremacist. This is what they will say every time that someone accuses them of intolerance or having only one template for the world, is that democracy is just one proposal for organizing humanity that happened to have had a moment when the organizing of large groups of people was necessary towards large ends, and that we're no longer in that moment.
0: This vision of capitalism without not only democracy, but also without modernity, why mm. why does that add up to an at least purported opposition to the nation state? You write, quote, their goal has been not to take a wrecking ball to the state, but to hijack, disassemble and rebuild it under their own private ownership. Is the attack on the very idea of of nation states? Is it more of a smokescreen then if what they really want actually is a particular sort of nation state? Because. to to briefly return to our discussion of Honduras, the zone there was all premised on a good old fashioned right wing coup, which in 2009, put people sympathetic to their agenda in charge of the Honduran nation state. It's still the nation state that's the scale of governance that that connects the micro zone to these global networks of capital.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great observation. I think that it really is a question of If nation states are going to accommodate and be tolerant of radical internal diversity of arrangements, including allowing for maximal level of foreign ownership, including in the extreme version of the Honduran model that was passed and then struck down by the constitutional court originally, these zones were going to be given not only the ability to make their own laws, have their own courts, have their own police systems... But they were also going to be able to negotiate trade deals independently as if they were sovereign nations of their own. So completely agree with you that if if there are nation states willing to kind of renege on the the normal expectations of foreigners within their, their borders to that level, then the model of the nation state per se is not the obstacle or that's not the essence of what's being imposed the essence of what's being opposed is indeed more this idea of the modern nation state as having some sort of close genetic indissoluble link with the idea of popular sovereignty and the the principle of one person, one vote democracy. That's the, the subtitle of the book, right? The dream of a world without democracy rather than the dream of a world without nation states, because in fact, If you look at the places that have deployed the zone most effectively, China, a place like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia increasingly, you know, decades later trying to catch up to Dubai as they try to pivot away from full dependency on oil, then these are places that have settled on a completely pre-modern idea of the nation state. I mean, the the example of the Emirates and Saudi Arabia is just so stark because you have, you know, literally a kind of theocratic clan-based sort of ethnocracy in the case of Saudi Arabia that is drawing its legitimacy entirely from like the bloodline of a fairly small group of people who are nonetheless tapped into maximally the most cutting-edge forms of technological production and the kind of, you know, they're at the frontier of global investment, speculative architecture, speculative building, and they're trying to, you know, make that real now in the in, in this 250-kilometer-long you know, city called The Line in and Neon <laughs> and all the rest of it. But they inhabit that really well, that kind of combination of the archaic and the hypermodern in a way that has not been compelled to undo democracy because democracy was never introduced in the first place, right? The places that the libertarians truly envy are places that have had the advantage of never having had democracy in the first place. So whether that's Singapore, whether it's the crown colony of Hong Kong, come the special administrative region of Hong Kong, whether it's the Gulf states, when a British conservative looks at all three of those places, and boy, do they ever look at all three of those places <laughs> with a great deal of envy and longing, they have still not been able to figure out how you actually walk back centuries of traditions of popular sovereignty. And that's that's really the essence of the of the problem right now for people who want to turn this from a kind of a pipe dream or a fever dream into a reality is how do you actually undo expectations about democracy their their solution so far has been well you just do it spatially you 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 designate small areas in which that's the case whether it's the area that became canary wharf eventually in london or the many enterprise zones and free ports designated around the united kingdom but then the next election comes around and often those very policies get overturned or something happens so Never having democracy in the first place is really the dream for these radical libertarians rather than being forced with a much more awkward challenge of trying to dismantle what already exists. Hence, Murray Rothbart's, you know, ringing call to repeal the 20th century, repeal this 20th century because, well, you go back. The beginning of the 20th century. Not only was there no income tax, which was a very fond dream for him, nor was there a federal reserve, but you didn't even have full emancipation of the country. Right? You had Jim Crow laws and huge constraints on the ability for people to actually vote. It's effectively still a male property supremacist society. At the turn of the century. The core of this is not a problem with nation states. In some ways, the vision that many of them have is to kind of multiply nation states endlessly, you could think of many of these small, often ethnically defined spaces sub-nationally organized as just kind of the Wilsonian principle run amok.
0: But yet still often depending on that larger polity, whether in the case of, of the coup in Honduras or in the case of Saudi Arabia, its ability to forcibly relocate 20,000 Bedouins in order to create this mega project that will be governed by shareholders instead of the Saudi state, it's still relying on the repressive force of that Saudi state.
1: That's right. It's still embedded inside of that larger structure and reliant entirely on its repressive apparatus. But I think it's not a universalist, right? So the idea is not quite that, as with the French Revolution, right, here is a new template for organizing human social life, you know, from now on there will be something called human rights. They will be universal. Everyone will be both a person and a citizen. We will organize ourselves into these republics, you know, in which we can express our common will. And, you know, if you're the French revolutionaries, you quite literally are trying to figure out how to like carry that vision across the border into the neighboring empire, from there into the rest of the world, right? That's our, that's our idea insofar as we have a kind of, reflexive narrative of how political ideology works or the history of political ideas in the modern era is like someone has an idea, other people agree, and then over time they start to try to figure out ways to make everyone on earth agree with them. Right. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, that's,
0: so, it, it's so hegemonic that and that's why people have trouble understanding right this about them because we're all just so steeped in enlightenment modernity basic it's a basic kind of groundwork premise of everything else we think.
1: Exactly. And I think that even for those more mid-century neoliberals, the kind of Hayek types, there is still a trace of that. I think, and not a trace of that. There's a strong strain of that. This idea that this is the correct line, and it may be difficult. I mean, this is then where the fault lines appear in the neoliberal movement. Is like, are all humans equally capable of being market actors? You know, and that's what I write about in Globalists. Is some of the more conservative members of the neoliberal movement sort of having their doubts that people from other, from non-white races, quote unquote, can actually be market actors or whether or not they need to be simply sort of contained and kept at a distance from the more civilized world again, quote unquote. But they still do have that universalism. What I think is challenging, but also, you know, interesting about the true anarcho-capitalist proposal is that it makes no claims on the organization of the world as such nor does it sort of offer a recipe to humanity for its salvation in fact it's the opposite in the sense that it thrives on variegation and diversity right it kind of it needs there to be the coeval existence of many different forms of production and social organization so that the people who are at the top of the pyramid can profit off of it. The venture capitalist visionaries, such as they are, people like Balaji, Srinivasan, you know, why isn't he worried about how you organize a blast furnace and a community around it? And, you know, keeping people alive long enough to produce another ton of iron for the steel mills? Well, because he just assumes that another part of the world will be taking care of that under whatever kind of arrangement works for them. And that he will be at the other end of the global value chain, kind of surfing the most value added stuff, commissioning people to write the designs for whatever new product will be created with that steel. And meanwhile, like probably an authoritarian country like China will be doing the dirty work of the of the steel production and they'll they'll just buy it from them, which is what I mean, that's just capitalist ideology as a political proposal, which, as you say, usually we've been for the for the 20th century trying to figure out the ways that liberalism and bourgeois ideology cloaks the raw self-interest of capitalists inside languages of rights, inside languages of the social, inside languages of humanity as such, inside languages, above all, of democracy. And the challenge of critique has often been to show how those terms can, as you were saying before, kind of offer a kind of smokescreen or just provide ideological cover for the, the material interests inside of them. Anarcho-capitalists are like, no more smokescreen, no more ideological cover. We're just saying the way that capitalist logic works in the world, and we're just calling that politics. And, and when you think of it that way, then, you know, combined and uneven development, not a problem at all. You need it. Let's get more of it. And let's also get more of that in the political realm, too, because then there's more arbitrage available. There's more plays available. And why that's also, I think, hard to get our head around. You know, you said it like we're just kind of bound to the enlightenment ideal. Absolutely. We are still, I think, and and now often in ways around climate, enchained to this idea for good reason of all being somehow on the same timeline, right? We're all on that like we're all walking along the same timeline. Some Countries and regions are maybe further back if you want to think about the movement toward growth or being an emerging market rather than an industrialized economy. But everyone is kind of, you know, plodding along this same path. 70 years ago, modernization theory in the heart of the empire, right down the street from where I am at MIT, people at like Walt Rostow were saying, like, we're just all in the stages of economic growth, like, whether you're a Chinese communist or, you know, a sun bushman or whatever like we're all we're all going to get there you know the anarcho-capitalist just looks at that and laughs right they're like no 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 <laughs> there is no single timeline it's like it's total fractal and the only task we have is to like figure out the best way through the maze with like our associates and people who are willing to pay us and we are not moving at all in like a single trajectory as humanity humanity is in a is a completely um, obsolete concept. It's not a community of faith that people share. And there is a kind of like bracing, obviously cynicism, you know, misanthropy, but also what I think looking in the face these kind of ideologies does is it forces us to ask, if you disagree with that, then like explain to me exactly how your own way of operating in the world is different than that. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, does our, you know, other than rhetoric, you know, in what ways does does um our way of organizing our own politics and life reflect that? And you know, sometimes often it does, thankfully, probably. Most of your listeners have different ways that they make that real in their lives, but you know, it it is, I think, one of the ways that the futurelessness, it is especially built into kind of low growth or post-growth kind of futures facing us in in the coming years and decades is starting to produce more of these ever more kind of cynical and sort of black pilled versions of politics
0: yeah cuz th- this notion like like you just said that we don't have a common fate on one level is contradicted by the objectively shared ecological reality of climate change but then it's also maybe not contradicted by it if we take it as this terrifyingly self-interested realist approach.
1: Well, I mean, I think climate stuff is a perfect site to, to, to show that contradiction in action, because literally the most cliche thing that one can say for the last several decades is the sentence, global problems require global solutions. And this is the premise of the meeting of the COP to discuss climate policy. Everything from kind of nuclear non-proliferation to humanitarian measures is based on this idea. These are problems that face all of humanity. Therefore, we need to think about them as a world community. But the only progress that has been made has been more towards the re of kind of national borders and national self-interest, whether it's promoting green energy that's produced domestically, Carbon border adjustment taxes that help domestic products rather than globally made products. That you know the nations still remain the ways that politics actually advances rather than the still nebulous and evasive and elusive space of the so-called international community. So I think that you know we got a dry run of this in COVID. That like when humanity is faced with a shared threat, we might not revert immediately to kind of a dog-eat-dog dog world, you know. In fact, we didn't at all. But we did immediately go very local. We reduced down to more mutual aid collectives at the level of the neighborhood, the town, sometimes the state, sometimes the region, at best the nation. But that the idea that, you know, future existential crises will produce ever more senses of humanity as a single unified Actor, I think, is it's hard to square with uh, you know what we've already seen.
0: What does exit mean for these figures? Do do they really believe that all individuals possess the power to exit, or is that a freedom for for just the super elite? What what sort of vision of freedom is that?
1: Milton Friedman's grandson, Patry Friedman, a master of PR, you know, very much helped by the fact that he. Knows very wealthy people in Silicon Valley, but also just at the magazine profile level, hugely helped by the fact that he's Milton Friedman's grandson. And the idea that he was pitching around 2009 was that they are going to build offshore polities on disused platforms or floating barges and use these as places for whatever, um, you know, selling new citizenships, having kind of lower, no tax sort of financial activity, offshore gambling. I mean, there is this superficial mystique to these kind of ideas, but then they can often feel quite thin. I mean, the same way that these these projects that are supposed to be rolled out in Saudi Arabia that are going to be like the world's most sustainable city in the middle of a desert. It's kind of like, at best, it just becomes another thing that like the super rich can go and just save themselves and let us all burn, right? So I didn't want to write a book just about that more to break with what the political economist Hedley Bull sort of famously called the tyranny of existing concepts. He was saying quite clearly there that especially the nation state, it has such a hold on us that we can think of something like the global because it's sort of, you know, captured well in the sort of planetary imagery. And we we can think of it as just kind of like the dissolution of all nation states into a single nation state, but that we have problems with conceptualizing scales between the national and the global. So he was actually talking about European community in the 1970s and 80s. It's like, what is this thing? A federation? Is it a union? Is it sort of a quasi-empire? But then, you know, one can also think of it below the level of the nation, hence the zones. And what I tried to roll out in the book is examples where there were, the thought was actually presented of making this fragmented territory, something that might actually come into existence and become kind of a dominant form. Probably the the chapter that I'm the most proud of in the book is the chapter on South Africa. And I had never heard about this, and nor after reading you know a lot of books about South African history, did I find that anyone else had really written about the example that I talk about in that chapter. I
0: had, I had definitely never heard of it.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And 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 that's strange because it turns out that the person who I wrote about in that chapter, Leon Lowe is his name, had written with his wife Frances Kendall, written a book that was until the publication of Nelson Mandela's memoir, the biggest political bestseller in modern South Africa. So in their idea was what they called the Swiss solution. And they thought that South Africa could just should just be shattered up into, you know, hundreds of Swiss-style cantons. Within each of these, there should be total internal self-rule. They should be able to make their own laws about who gets to live there, who gets to be there, travel through, and that there should be almost no central government. So the federal government should just basically you know patrol the outer borders, maybe go to the U.N, but beyond that, no redistribution, no central taxation system, totally decentralized. And why they wanted to create a South Africa that look like this? was because they thought, and they said it openly, Lowe was quoted in Time magazine saying he wanted to give the opportunity to let the black tiger out of the cage without the whites being eaten. (laughs) Wow! Extraordinary quote (laughs) put in print from out of your mouth.
0: And this wasn't just their kind of wild imagination. They saw the actual existing (laughs) system that, that apartheid had evolved into of homelands these open air prisons for Black South Africans—they saw that as the the basis to develop this this new you know so-called Swiss model to to overcome what they saw as an oppressively statist, in their view, even state socialist apartheid order.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, that's the strange thing. Is yeah, a couple, there's, a, there's many strange things, but <laughs> yeah. one of them is that this homeland system or the Bantustan system, which being produced as a way to kind of strip Black South Africans of their citizenship and recode them as being the citizens of these artificially created ethnically Black homelands, which would make you now not a South African. So when you come to South Africa, to Johannesburg or Bloemfontein or whatever to work, as you inevitably would have to do, then you would be entering a foreign country because you're actually a citizen of this homeland and so you would not have any citizenship rights not that you had any anyway but they wouldn't even be on the horizon and you would at any point be you know prone to being deported back to the place that you were supposedly from where in many cases you had never even set foot so you know from the outside this was just dismissed as like kind of ideological kind of eyewash from the south african state but the south africans themselves were completely serious right they they, each of these homelands had a flag. They had their own airlines in some cases. They had their own stamps. They were treated as if they were independent nations. And so, this was, according to South Africa, their act of decolonizing. They were giving the Blacks their own countries and like, stop bothering us about being a racist country. We just produced Black nations within our own border and they're now independent. The, the remarkable part of the story, as it appears in the chapter, is that this libertarian. Leon Lowe, who, among other things, like was in Hong Kong, invited by Hayek in 1978, the Mont Pelerin Society meeting, continues to be very active amongst other things with sort of the more far-right libertarians. But he was given the right in the 1980s or the, the chance to help sort of design the economic policy for one of these homelands. So the homeland of Siskai was created as what he hoped would be a kind of a jewel of a zone that would model deregulated, foreign capital friendly, low wage labor driven manufacturing. And very quickly there were many factories set up, mostly Taiwanese and Israeli investors. And it was sort of quote unquote booming, but the kind of the sad contradiction, is that it was booming basically because this supposedly independent nation was actually getting just a huge amount of subsidies directly from the South African central government <laughs> to make it a kind of Potemkin village uh, modernization. So it was not libertarian at all. It was like t- full on corporate welfare. And second of all, the attempts by, by the, the black workers within that homeland to organize, which were you know incessant in the face of life-threatening danger those efforts were being stamped out with murderous violence. So the trade trade union leaders were not only being abducted and murdered themselves, but they were having their family members harassed and attacked and in some cases murdered. So whatever kind of freedom this was, (laughs) and it was being celebrated as a beacon of freedom by American libertarians, British libertarians, the front page of the Wall Street Journal, talked about sky as a kind of a showcase of economic liberty. It was at the expense of both, you know, the, the basic right to kind of organize and express oneself was being policed with murderous violence. And even at the level of supposed economic liberty, it was a sham. It was a statist prop for apartheid states, PR. So that is, I wanted to make the book kind of more about examples of that, that less than just, you know, Peter Thiel building a mansion on an island and going and just getting away from it all. I mean, the rich are always going to do that. They are being given more and more opportunities to do that. But I think that, especially if you want to do what I hope to say, like, okay, if global geographies are being kind of shattered up and fragmented in the way that has just been described, then what do we do as a countermeasure? Right? Do we try to just squash all of these zones and make the the nation state sort of legally even again? I don't think so. Do we try to kind of figure out how to rehumanize or, or you know, insert different kinds of politics into the space of these zones? I think that's a better proposal, but it has its limitations because it, it suggests that you still want to kind of escape democratic oversight and make things that are exceptional for some groups and not others. Or do we want to sort of think about a more leftist experimental politics of zones which are not exclusionary, not anti-democratic, and can maybe produce possibilities of emulation elsewhere? So that was my intention to kind of try to fertilize our imagination a little bit around non-national, non-conventional ways of organizing production in life such that we can break a little bit more with that tyranny of existing concepts. I'm
0: Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why
1: you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig.
0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com. And by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for DIG listeners like you. One that you might like is Angela Davis, an autobiography, now available in paperback. Angela Davis has been at the cutting edge of black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolition movements for more than 50 years. In an autobiography, Davis describes her journey from her childhood in Alabama to one of the century's most significant political trials, from her high school political activity to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soldad Brothers, and from the Faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. First published in 1974, an autobiography is a powerful and commanding account written with warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction that resonates today. This new edition features a powerful and expansive new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Available now from Haymarket Books in paperback, hard copy, and as an ebook, and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and 25 pounds, respectively. This power of exit is also the motor of their theory of change. I mean, we discussed that this is not an enlightenment universal vision of the world, but there is something there that still at least implicitly affirms a sort of capitalist universalism. In terms of the power of exit, you write, quote, Once capital flees to new, low-tax, unregulated zones, the theory goes, non-conforming economies would be forced to emulate these anomalies. By starting small, the zone sets out to model a new end state for all. How is this capital flight-induced theory of change supposed to operate? And then how does it relate to the more mundane, general, long-standing logic of capital mobility that we're all too familiar with, which is that we have a system where capital flight effectuates capital discipline.
1: Yeah. I mean, that part of that part of the argument, I think, is probably the easiest to to prove or demonstrate. And it's the kind of thing that for sure people like Emmanuel Saez and Gabrielle Zuckman and, and Thomas Piketty, you know, by putting taxation back at the center of our idea of ethics and politics, they've really, I think, made this more tangible for people in, in, in I think a very helpful way. And the way that it, it pans out and, and the way that I describe and sort of historicize it in the book is often kind of mind bending in the sense that countries like the United States or United Kingdom, you know, large countries with relatively large numbers of people are compared against places that are minute, with almost no people <laughs> in such a way that it's suggested that the United States should sort of get its act together and act more like this micronation because if it doesn't do so then the most obvious case like corporate profits are just going to be booked in that country rather than your country. So I remember during the I think it was the 2016 campaign that the Heritage Foundation had produced this graphic that showed the American corporate tax rate next to the, I think the Mauritius corporate tax rate. And with circulating this kind of as a meme on social media being like, look, America really needs to lower its corporate tax rate. Otherwise, like, you know, all the businesses are going to go to Mauritius. And (laughs) I mean, (laughs) just to like sort of try to understand what that could possibly mean, you know, requires, uh, you know, a kind of, introduction to the way that indeed the the laws of the world are organized such to make total mobility possible for certain kinds of actors, even as it makes, you know, that mobility almost impossible for other kinds of actors. You know, and this is where Katerina Pistor's work is super helpful, like what she calls the code of capital is such that you can write a contract anywhere in the world and say that, you know, should there be a dispute, it will be solved under you know, the, the law of, of New York or Britain, for
0: example. Or within the U.S., Delaware.
1: Or, or exactly, or <laughs> Delaware. or you And you can register your company in Wyoming or South Dakota or any other kind of jurisdiction that is convenient for you that has, like, courts for resolving disputes or that has minimal levels of corporate taxation. So that kind of disconnect between, like, The materiality of the product and its site of production, let alone the workers who are putting their labor into it, and then how it exists kind of legally and financially is already kind of mind-bending enough. The zone, in a way, if you think about these micronations and jurisdictions for booking corporate profits as zones, and I think it's helpful to think of them that way, because they're often very non-conventional political units. I mean, you think about the Grand Cayman Islands or Bermuda, right? These are like British offshore territories. They're part of Britain. You know, In their court of highest appeal is the British Privy Council. And yet the British government will often act as if they're being blackmailed by their own kind of micro colony <laughs> to keep their corporate tax rates low. So this is, it's either kind of disingenuous, ignorant, or just playing the electorate for fools, I think, to think that there is no other way of organizing global capitalism than this. And and the fact that we're currently now moving towards a kind of just OECD global corporate minimum tax rate, although it will make things hard for sort of poor countries that have thrived only as offshore tax havens, is nonetheless good because it is important to give citizens and populations a sense that the world can be organized other than the way it is. I think that if there's anything that's most pernicious about neoliberalism as a kind of a dominant political ideology, if we think of it in the broad sense, especially sort of the neoliberal globalization of the 90s and the early 2000s, was this idea that that humans had no ability to influence the world around them, that all they could do was kind of surrender to the forces of economic globalization which were you know, time and again described in natural terms like the changing of the seasons or the flowing of the tides and the storms for which states and politicians and, and populations could only kind of gird themselves and go with the flow or try to read the meteorological signs and couldn't actually affect themselves. I think that one thing that has to be seen as positive over the last few years is the turn against that kind of globalization consensus. I think populations and and electorates are ever less willing to hear politicians just sort of defer to abstract forces of globalization as things that are forcing their hands. And the encoding of places like in the first index of economic freedom, a place like Costa Rica being the fifth freest economy in the world, the retroactive encoding of places that were authoritarian dictatorships like Honduras and El Salvador in the 70s as having been supposedly it's among the most economically free countries in the world. These are some of the things I touch on in my book. We're just ways of trying to sort of disempower electorates from being able to make different choices. And the idea that the zone could emulate kind of an end state for the home economy is a dynamic that we've been watching for decades. And I think that it's something that, for people to have any faith in politics, it's very important to be able to push back against that and to sort of re-empower people with the feeling that they don't need to constantly be in competition with places that have no
0: kind of formal similarities with them whatsoever. The hyper-capitalist city-states so beloved by these these radical libertarians, they ban trade unions, opposition parties, of course, but a really basic powerful way to limit or eliminate democracy is, is to simply radically circumscribe the demos. So in places like Singapore and Dubai, what we see is the disassociation of a nation's working classes, typically migrant working classes, from the rights of national citizenship. How does this form of excluding migrant working classes from citizenship compare to prior historical periods, earlier in capitalism's development, when the entire working class was simply excluded from citizenship?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And actually, it might be, you might be proposing the solution in the question but I hadn't thought about it that way before, which is is that per our earlier discussions about kind of a pre-modern form of organization, another characteristic, of course, of that pre-20th and even better pre-19th century version of citizenship was to simply only give it to a fraction of the population. The only way you can kind of do that now is by ensuring that, you know, roughly the same amount of the population that would previously have been enfranchised under a a more narrow franchise is a citizen and everyone else is simply a non-citizen. So it would be interesting to kind of look at the percentages of Singapore and Dubai. Dubai, it's, I think, close to 90 percent non-citizen and in Singapore, upwards of 75 percent and sort of find the moment, let's say, in like British 19th century history when that was also the proportion of sort of adults in the country who were allowed to have a vote versus the disenfranchised majority. But the effect is the same, and and intentionally so. And it's in fact one of the things that is most striking to me about the constant envy that right-wing thinking specifically of the British conservatives, feel about places like Singapore and Dubai is how do they propose to solve that not insignificant problem, which is having a completely disenfranchised majority of residents in the country when their own electorate tells them again and again that part of the thing they're really worried about is high levels of immigration. Ironically, the very moment that some British conservatives were talking about Brexit as a way of building kind of Singapore on Tams. Singapore itself was was experiencing some of its deepest political uh, conflict in its history, precisely over that same matter of immigration that had been so politically charged in the run-up to the Brexit vote, because those workers, uh, many of whom are South Asian or Southeast Asian, who had been growing in numbers and had been treated ever more poorly and kept ever more segregated from the rest of the Singaporean population, were starting to show more vocal signs of discontent. And there had been a a kind of a a riot in the little India area after some police abuse. And Singaporeans themselves were starting to say, wait, maybe this proportion of non-citizens to citizens is getting unmanageable. So Britain, itself facing its problems about the idea of citizens and non-citizens looking fondly at a place that is having the same issue, suggests that this sort of people problem is not one that can be sort of like easily solved.
0: On the one hand, like anarcho-capitalists can say, hey, sure, we can have white nationalist and black nationalist microstates. There'll be room for everything in a world of one million microstates, and you can choose what microstate suits you and you know contract with that microstate but as is already likely pretty obvious to listeners radical libertarians in fact are are proponents of a profoundly reactionary racial and civilizational politics and murray rothbard the the american founder of anarcho capitalism perhaps offers the the purest distillation of that who was rothbard and how did he combine his his radical paleo libertarian vision for for small scale governance carried out through private property rights, contracts and markets with a paleo conservative politics of just nakedly unreconstructed white supremacy, a politics of proto-trumpian figures like Pat Buchanan, Sam Francis and and Peter Brimlow?
1: Yeah, so he is quite quite the character. Um, <laughs> He was born and raised in in New York City. And is Jewish. Is Jewish. Was educated at City College and then Columbia University in the 1940s and 50s. Came of age, right, in the same time as what you would think of as like the New York intellectuals, kind of like Irving Howe and the people who started things like the Partisan Review, many of whom were Stalinists, many who then became Trotskyists. And it was was a time of great foment on the left, obviously, intellectually, in, the, in New York City. He was different in that he was pretty consistently someone who was on the right, was anti-socialist, was in Ayn Rand's circle in the 1950s and early 60s, the same time that Alan Greenspan was, and becomes interested in the question of race in the 1960s as the new left begins to of rumble across university campuses. And he especially gets interested in the role of the Black Panthers, in the student movement, the anti-war movement, and the kind of the new coalitions forming that were called the new left. He was interested in them because he thought that black nationalism was actually a great idea. He was into Malcolm X, critical of MLK, saw King as someone who was just pushing for the great society kind of accelerated. It was going to be a big state welfareist. Whereas he thought that the idea of black nationalists keeping to their own, carrying guns, defending themselves, feeding their communities, showed a kind of willingness to be self-reliant and against the state in a way that he himself was. So he he was openly advocating things like the creation of a new Africa with a K, as it was called, uh, this idea of a kind of black belt secessionist state in the American South. And basically only fell out of love with the black power movement in the early 1970s, when in his opinion, there was just too much cross-racial organizing happening. And especially in sort of working class formations where black workers and white workers were working alongside one another, he just finally got fed up. And he was like, this is not how I expected it. This is supposed to be a kind of white people organized with white people, black people organized with black people. That could be the basis of a a more anti-state form of organization that could come closer to what was already for him, his kind of anarcho-capitalist ideal of private ordering. So he spent then from the 60s, after he fell out of love with the left in the early 70s, for the next sort of 20 years or so, he was busy doing a lot of things, including co-founding the Cato Institute with Charles Koch and others when it was still in San Francisco before it moved to, to D.C., And in a lot of his writings often ranging further back in history. So he wrote like a multi-volume history of the early United States. He wrote about things like the kind of Irish Gaelic clan model of self-organization. He was deeply romantic about the American frontier and the kind of homesteading possibility because he basically adhered to like a Lockean natural right idea of finding a scrap of territory, mixing your labor with it, and making it your own. So in short, he had visions of kind of settler-colonial style, self-reliance, small communities.
0: The sort of settler-colonial imaginary seems to be the premise of a lot of your thinkers.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. In the sense that supposedly all you need is sort of like land and freedom from the state, and you can do your thing. Anyone who's read one of the many, many fascinating new books of indigenous history that have been published in the last decade or so will know how laughable that idea is of the frontier, that in fact, the frontier as a kind of a white man's frontier was entirely a product of American state interventions and American government assistance in defeating the indigenous prior residents of the land. This was not part of Rothbard's Way of looking at American history, he he thought that the indigenous populations had no claim on the land because of their quasi-communistic way of organizing life and because they had not encoded a, a version of ownership legally the way that would have legitimacy. So he's he's ranging around. He's thinking about what in the past and in the present might still be a beautiful and viable model of political organization. And then when the when the Cold War starts to come to an end, he starts to get really excited about all of the neo-nationalist movements. So he's excited about the fact that out of the multinational empire of the USSR, you are now getting a return to a more like single ethnicity, single territory, single language model of sort of Wilsonian nation states, whether it's, you know, Estonia or Kazakhstan or whatever.
0: Played out especially well in Yugoslavia.
1: Yugoslavia, he thought this was great. I mean, the, the chapter that I write about Rothbard is called The Wonderful Death of a State because he said, you know, watching the USSR dissolve, there's nothing more beautiful for a libertarian to see than, than the death of a state. He got excited also about these neo-nationalist movements like the Lega Nord in Italy, the Austrian Freedom Party, the Swiss People's Party in Switzerland. One thing that people, I think, often don't realize is many of these, these breakaway groups or neo-nationalist groups from that era, were also deeply libertarian in their politics. So often what they were opposing was also European Union, what they saw as socialism being brought down on them from above.
0: Including UKIP.
1: UKIP, born exactly in that, in that time and out of that same spirit as well, that the Tories had gone too far to the center and so needed to be outflanked again from the right in an exact sort of first draft of what would happen with Farage and Cameron in the 2010s. So other people who were looking admiringly at what was happening in Europe were conservatives in the United States who were self-consciously to the right of mainstream Republicans and mainstream conservatives. So if you think about the early 90s, well, Reagan has been just out of office. So now you have George H.W. Bush. And the predominant mood in the Republican Party is is one that would be called by the people themselves neoconservatism. So the Cold War is over now you can bring democracy and capitalism to the former communist world, and you can sort of increase the American presence, increase the American military footprint, and increase, you know, the American market share in this brave new world after, you know, system competition and conflict in the heart of Europe. There were conservatives in the United States who didn't agree with that at all, and they thought that this should be taken as an opportunity not to kind of make America a kind of global empire trying to bear democracy out everywhere beyond its borders, out there seeking monsters to slay in the famous quote, but instead that they should take this as a chance to withdraw back to kind of the isolationist position that they felt America had been deviating on the wrong path of like since the First World War, practically, but really since the Second World
0: War. Exemplified by Pat Buchanan versus George H.W. Bush's New World Order.
1: Exactly. Right. Bush did himself no favors by, by actually <laughs> using those words, <laughs> by using the term new world order in a speech, which just, you know, set up a trillion blog entries and everything else between, including, I've still never understood how there was that WW, the world
0: wrestling thing called yeah. New world order. But, yeah. From when it was still the <laughs> WWF when we were kids. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs>
1: exactly. So that's a bit of a sidebar. But um, so anyway, these people who were against Bush and the neoconservatives, you know, Bush won called themselves paleo-conservatives, self-consciously. We're not neo, we're paleo, we're going back. And they wanted an America that's sort of more walled off from the world and explicitly walled off from incoming immigrants from the non-white world. Part of their platform was to kind of roll back the 1965 Immigration Act, which had, you know, broken with the previous existing sort of racial and national quotas to allow for the arrival of people from all parts of the world. So there should be a return to a more homogeneous, white, Christian, tradition-bound nation. In their their search for allies, because they had now alienated themselves from the mainstream right and very deliberately, they, they're completely at war with the mainstream Republican Party. They're at war with the main commentators inside of the, you know, the establishment. They're searching for allies and and they find Murray Rothbard who is, by that time in the early 90s, had helped set up something called the Ludwig von Mises Institute as effectively part of the Auburn University in Alabama, alongside a Bostonian named Ellen H. Rockwell, known as Lou Rockwell, who had been libertarian for a long time and had also been an opponent of integration, racial integration for a long time since he was at Arlington House Press in the 1970s. So Rockwell and Rothbart were having their own problems within the libertarian camp that kind of mirrored the problems that the paleoconservatives were having within the conservative camp. Rothwell and Rockbart hated the fact that libertarianism had been associated now with kind of like nudism and drug use and like polyamory and whatever. I mean, if you watch if you watch online, the kind of candidates trying to run for the Libertarian Party, you know, it's like <laughs> you get a sense of what they were rejecting, which is like what they saw as libertinism rather than libertarianism. So they rebaptized themselves as paleo-libertarians, joined ranks with the paleo-conservatives and formed something called the John Randolph Club in the early 1990s. Their biggest sort of political intervention was to help advise on and back Pat Buchanan's run for president in 1992 and again in 1996. And
0: Ron Paul was also.
1: And Ron Paul was absolutely part of that. Peter Brimelow was part of that. And what they found common ground on, because it can look strange at, at first glance, like sort of people who believed in the American nation and tradition teaming up with people who were like interested in, you know, government by contract and couldn't care less about the the formal borders of something like the United States, is they realized that they both believed in decentralization. And they both believed in tradition, which would make sense if you were just someone who is a conservative and believes in those as transcendent values above all others, just as a kind of act of faith. But for Rockwell and Rothbard, they believed in Christianity kind of for its own sake, but also in a way that I find interesting and underexplored in things I've read before, which is that they believe in kind of racial homogeneity and shared religion also because it's a, it, it can sort of produce the glue of society in the absence of things like representative institutions. So if you're going to do away with democracy, that's well and good. But how else are you going to then make people like not just, you know, see each other as totally foreign from one another. You have, might have a common language, okay. But what they saw is that in the language of economists, if there's a common race or a common religion, you can kind of decrease transaction costs. So basically people will trust each other more. They'll have more confidence that this person is like reliable. I can do business with them. I can negotiate with them or whatever. So their belief in a stateless society always assumed that they would be a kind of a bedrock of common religion, common race, openly in their case, upon which you could build as the larger existing structures that had previously played that integrating role like went away.
0: Right, you write You write that quote, authority was not the problem, rules were not the problem, the problem was not having enough authorities and rules to choose from, and in the absence of the state, the Christian family and, and church, those would substitute mm-hmm. for the sort of rulemaking discipline that that that's normally meted out by the state. And the the argument really reminds me of of Melinda Cooper's work in family values, which which shows that these forms of traditional morality in the family have always been been key bulwarks for for neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And also this particular blending of traditional authority, private power, libertarian ethos that extends both to personal morality and choices and, and economic arrangements. Also, Reminds me of and strikes a similar chord as I think the modern conservative movement, just more generally, the classic three plank conservative fusionism mm-hmm. created by by Frank Myers and others in the pages of the National Review. In your view, what what do these different currents have have in common? What what makes the the radical libertarians distinct from from these other nodes of conservative thinking that are thinking about how traditional forms of forms of traditional social authority operate alongside laws securing private property and contracts?
1: I mean, there's definitely a similarity with what, you know, was called fusionism. That is just the recipe of the modern conservative movement, mixing sort of free market libertarianism with traditional uh, values and ideas of religion and the family. What I have sometimes called in other things the new fusionism, in which Paul Gottfried, the coiner of the term, the alternative right, who is very much at the center of this new paleo alliance, and the John Randolph Club, also called the new fusionism in the late 1980s, was a radicalization of that existing tradition, often through, and here's where it kind of gets interesting, is an appeal to science rather than just religion. So in particular, he, Gottfried was picking up on the fact that Thomas Fleming, who was one of the founders of the League of the South, which I can't help but telling listeners, was originally drawn as a kind of inspiration from Lega Nord, League of the North. They called themselves League of the South as a neo-confederate movement in the American South. Tom Fleming, rather than just talking about kind of God and morality or whatever, he was actually in the 1980s already talking about E.O. Wilson and sociobiology. So why is it that we tend to move into groups that are more like one another? Well, he would appeal to someone like Wilson, the, the, you know, originally entomologist and natural scientist who would be saying that, well, there are there are sort of forms of kinship that work in the animal world. And as humans, we are also animals. Therefore, it makes sense that we form into these small troops and, and, and find it easier to transact and, and cooperate in these groups. So there's appeal to that kind of science, sociobiology. But then most importantly, and this is a big deal in the early 1990s, there's a resurgence of IQ-based racism. And the most important example of that is, of course, The Bell Curve by uh, Richard J. Hernstein and Charles Murray, published in 1994, which Murray Rothbard said himself sort of like completely animated the John Randolph Club. The paleo conservatives and paleo libertarians were completely uh, magnetized by this book. They were excited about the fact that this had broken into the mainstream, that it had taken the arguments of the fusionists, the traditional fusionists, one step further, right? How did it take it one step further? Well, it had gone as far as to reintroduce the concept of race science, this is saying that race is not just a tradition, it's not just an affinity group or whatever. It's actually something that is detectable by hard sciences and that it has quantifiable, you know, non-negligible effects on the levels of intelligence. This is these are the not just disputed but refuted and discredited claims in the bell curve. So what made it kind of special was this sort of race science as such, and it still is the fault line between what we call the alt-right and the hard-right tends to be this willingness to talk about race as a science is something that is sort of built into the human DNA, built into the genome in a way that can be identified and from which one can draw a set of policies and sort of politics. So I think that was the, the radicalization that happened in the 1990s. It's what got some of these people sort of booted out of respectable conservative circles, in some cases, in most cases permanently, when Sam Francis started talking about the need to you know, talk about white identity and the white race as something that was positive and needed to be built upon that was one step too far for a lot of the people who would be previously publishing him. So that is indeed, I think, an interesting moment in the 1990s because it's sort of like the balkanization and the fragmentation that most Americans were watching from afar in a place like Europe or in Somalia, which is falling apart at the time. And mostly, you know, seeing as sites of either concern or places that might require like American military intervention or humanitarian intervention. The sort of counterintuitive flip that the paleo conservatives and libertarians pull off is to sort of look at that and say, like, how exciting. How can we sort of bring that wave of fragmentation back home to the United States and sort of let that secession on racial and ethnic uh, borders become something that begins to reorganize the American polity as well.
0: What concretely has the impact of, of thinkers like Rothbard been on, on the present-day right wing in, in the US and also elsewhere? Rothbard and then his his even more radical protege, Hans Hermann Hoppe, they've become memefied among the far right online youth. What's their influence? Does it extend beyond an online fringe? And I guess I could ask the same question more generally in terms of your thinkers. To to what degree are their aspirations the aspirations of most capitalists, even if expressed in in a more extreme way? What's the relationship between all these extremists and the more general currents of political economic thinking amongst elites over the past half century?
1: Well, the Rothbard and Hoppe question, I mean, the reason I started looking into them historically was because of an attempt to try to understand what was happening with the alt-right, right? Around 2017 in the Charlottesville protest, the death of Heather Heyer, I think myself, like many other people, were pretty horrified. And also, you know, just desperately trying to figure out, you know, what exactly was this ideology that was animating people? Because it seemed like something more than simply like the term white nationalism was used, that never was quite satisfactory to me because I didn't know what. The nation was supposed to be in that model. Was it a secessionist movement? Was it a desire to, you know, seize the reins of the highest levels of power in the United States and, and you know produce some kind of fascistoid kind of you know regime? You know, I, we were all, I know you were too, casting around desperately to try to figure out how to we could conceptualize and contain this this frightening reality that was surrounding us. And the more I looked at Rothbard and Hoppe. And then I looked into the kind of things that were being written online by the alt-right self-appointed, in many cases, kind of leaders. There was just like a one-to-one relationship. I mean, what I described in the book as this kind of paleo alliance in the early 1990s, what the actors at the time called the paleo alliance, from which came American Renaissance, the publication, there was this combination of or willingness and a desire to break up existing nation-states into racially defined enclaves at that time, most often defined by fairly free market policies, right, rather than kind of a decommodified or kind of socialistic policies. This was just a way to describe what sort of online alt-right policies looked like. That's what the alt-right imagination was. There was not Coincidence that in profile after profile of people who were, you know, movers and shakers in this world, there was, was the so called libertarian to alt right pipeline was repeated again and again. So I think around that time, 2017, especially with a figure like Richard Spencer, who had, you know, self identifiedly made this move from being a libertarian and someone influenced by the Austrian school into uh, more scientifically racist influenced ideas, this was the a way to describe the dominant version of alt-right ideology. What happened after 2017, and this is now, you know, I think to my great relief, and I think the relief of a lot of people, is that the, the attempt to unite the right at the time was has been more and more of a failure. And that whatever coherence existed around the alt-right movement has been, you know, largely lost since then so there are still of course you know unfortunately robust online sort of concentrations of activity producing among among other things the recent the leaker from southern massachusetts who is now recently been you know shown to have been engaged in all kinds of alt-right racist kind of memory and online activity but there are now more people who would identify as like more traditionalist or socialist in the sense that their vision of a white secessionist nation would not be one that was anarcho-capitalistic, but one that would be more redistributive, that acknowledges more the kind of the role of the family as a site of social reproduction explicitly instead of just pretending it doesn't exist, which is often the way anarcho-capitalists operate. So I think that that this sort of rothbard Hoppe version of anarcho-capitalism was pretty close to what we called the alt-right a few years ago. But insofar as alt-right exists now, I think there's more space for more redistributive versions of of right-wing politics. So there, as elsewhere, I think that the people I look at in the book are useful not so much as offering kind of like the hidden script to our present day world. Certainly I'm not proposing that the people I write about in the book have been like operating behind the scenes to engineer the world we live in. That it's, it's, it would be a far-fetched claim and not one that I would ever be able to prove or what i set out to prove. What I think I'm interested in with this group is the way that they kind of manifest some of the most neurotic and pathological features of the world we live in. So there, I see them in the same way that you know Frederick Jameson would say, you know, go read science fiction because it's diagnostic, right? It tells you something about the state of um, the world that we're currently inhabiting. And so, in in that sense, I find the elisions that they're able to live with, and the kind of absences of of realistic connection to to other humans, symptomatic and diagnostic of the fact that we have been collectively producing a reality in which that can feel more and more true. And in that sense, you know, steel manning their ideology and giving it substance and sort of producing it and putting it in front of our eyes, for me, is intended as a kind of a provocation to sort of show on the one hand the kind of extraordinary flexibility and lability actually of some of their thinking we haven't even talked yet of some of the sort of wilder examples from the book the fact that you know this dutch libertarian could end up in somalia as the as the state collapses and instead of just in a in a classic self-interested way like getting on an airplane and leaving he in a more like radical and even sort of revolutionary way decides to like plunge into the stateless space of somalia and try to write a constitution for a stateless society, reduce then to a kind of a set of a contract that would create a hybrid out of customary Somali law, tribal law, with 21st century
0: business contracts. He's excited not just about the collapse of the state, but about the traditional system that that would govern in its place, the the Somali clan. Right, and then attempts to form his own Somali clan of white capitalists. Right,
1: exactly. A (laughs) businessman's clan, which he says was suggested to him by some sort of Somali elders, and maybe that's true. But what's interesting is that there's a kind of uh, extreme willingness to experiment and to commit in that case that was also repeated in the wonderful example of Milton Friedman's son and Patry Friedman's father, uh, David, director Friedman, who... Is a lawyer and also a prominent anarcho-capitalist thinker
0: and a leading member of Society for Creative Anachronism.
1: Exactly, and, and a leading medieval recreational uh, reenactor, who, among other things, has been performing as this. Uh, he probably would balk at the word "performing," but he has been sort of partially inhabiting Cos- cosplay, part of his life. <laughs> yeah, LARPing, cosplaying as an early 12th century Berber poet named Duke Cariadoc of the Bow, um, <laughs> in whose persona he, he, you know, curses the name of infidels and um, eats only with his right hand and praises Allah um, with the mentioning of the names of true believers and so on and so on. And in the sites of reenactment, the Punic Wars, which he helped create in northern Pennsylvania as a portmanteau of Pennsylvania and Punic Wars, He created this this convention that was called the Enchanted Ground, where you you sort of set up a rope, and inside of that space, you have to exist like you're in the Middle Ages, and you cannot bring in any technologies or act in any other way, other than, of course, speaking in languages that sound quite different than they would have been spoken then. But this seemed, at first, when I was reading about it, like a sort of a, just kind of a kooky detail, or like a trivial kind of aside. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this the reason I think I find these anarcho-capitalists compelling is they have that belief that they can kind of LARP a new reality into being, right? Like there is this idea of just like a level of individual commitment and ideal the need to search for kind of ideological purity, which at times, you know, this is this is the, this is the thing, right? I mean, because they are flowing with the zeitgeist towards like ever greater commodification of human life, it can make them feel like they are sort of manifesting it themselves. So Balaji Srinivasan, the venture capitalist and big sort of Bitcoin operator, claims that that he and, and his fellow Bitcoiners kind of LARPed a currency into existence. Of course, anyone who would look objectively at the phenomenon of cryptocurrency would say, first of all, that they have not larped a currency into existence because it's not a, uh, doesn't operate as a currency in any way that you might think about it. They what they have larped into existence is a beanie baby, which is just you know uh, a a trivial object you know defined by its scarcity that in a time of like maximal speculation and kind of investor froth is able to suck in a bunch of people who hope that they'll be able to hold on to the beanie baby, you know, just until the right moment until they can unload it to a sucker who pays a little more for it than they should have. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's not a unit of, of, of exchange or account. Because they are surfing with good luck in the direction of global capitalism, they get the misperception that they are somehow producing it themselves. So it makes it easier for them to be drawn further and further into this idea that everything that's happening is of their own making to the point that their grandiosity can can become like inflated to the point that Srinivasan said, no, now I'm going to LARP a new country into existence. And I've had people say to me who are, you know, of this persuasion, things like, well, don't you think it would be good just to be able to create like two patches of territory, one where you would organize the world, like you might like to like more socialist or decommodified, and another one that's like ours, like anarcho-capitalist, totally commodified. And my response was not to like engage with a thought experiment, but just to say like, where are these patches of territory? <laughs> you know, like, the thing about the earth is it's it's been divided up. Like it, it, the only way you're gonna get that chance Is under the conditions, as you mentioned earlier, of like an authoritarian coup, the world is not a blank slate, especially the kind of move to an online world. But then also just the overhang of that settler colonial ideology is such that this idea of of the possibility of sort of finding a blank space on the map continues to persist in ways that are, you know, really, really pernicious.
0: A land without people for a people with capital. (laughs) <laughs>
1: I think that the point, you know, of the book was just to and especially I think it's because it was written in um large part in 2020 like during the covid year during the year of the year that you know American cities were a lot of them were you know filled with larger numbers of people protesting than they had been in ever <laughs> decades or ever the contested election at the end of the year, I I think like many other people was just feeling like extremely unmoored and, and um, disoriented and unclear about where exactly we were going. And I was reading a lot of science fiction, cyberpunk, watching a lot of, you know, Japanese anime from the 1990s and reading a lot of these anarcho-capitalists and I, I think it's it was sort of a, a bit of a survival mechanism or something or like a way to keep myself sane is it was a feeling like there must be order to this somehow like and even if and even if it's not an order that I endorse, somehow the 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 effort to kind of produce a coherent portrait of this ideology that you know I end up calling crack up capitalism in the book was kind of a therapeutic, effort on my part and was also I think an 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 effort to kind of re-inject our political conversations with like a bit more of a sense of like play in some ways. Like I think that political imagination is is has a tendency, even in times of great kind of creativity, to to enter back into kind of familiar patterns and familiar channels. And then even more so to have its energy drained and co-opted very quickly by you know, existing corporate powers. I think, you know, to mention BLM again, that has just been so clearly happened so quickly with the, the corporate cooptation, I think, of demands for racial justice, to the point that it's 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 almost you know stood in the way of the, the continued success of those very vital political demands. So I think that. One of the things we just really need right now is to just keep evolving and keep mutating. And the fact that I followed one of these mutations in kind of a disturbing direction was perhaps only meant as a kind of a negative example of the way that we should be open to positive mutations, because genetic scientists know that you know mutations aren't bad. That's, we, we might think of mutants as a bad
0: thing in the kind of popular imagination, but mutations are good the the power of a of a right-wing capitalist opposition to neoliberal globalization became overwhelmingly evident with with Trump and Brexit. But obviously this is nothing new. Margaret Thatcher was a Eurosceptic from the beginning. Pat Buchanan transformed conservative American politics way back in the 1990s. But today I think we often think of right-wing anti-globalism as racist and anti-migrant and nationalist, but also Oriented toward reviving the economic standing of the native working class, at least mm. at least on the rhetorical level, mm-hmm. as as we see with Trump. But that story seems at best incomplete because because many on the anti-globalist right, as you tell it, only want to more radically unleash market forces rather than to protect anyone, including some privileged group of native workers, to protect anyone from those forces. How do the figures in your book and the story you tell relate? to the welfarist discourse of Trumpist or or Trump-adjacent groupings like the National Republicans or, or, or like the compact magazine era, Sora Bumari. What, what What do we understand about today's right when we put these two sorts of groups, when we compare them to one another?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's actually something that has transformed, I think, even in the course of me writing the book, because one of the reasons why I set off on this topic originally, as I mentioned, was the kind of early Trump moment, early Trump years, when I think that what the nature of the backlash was, was really being misdescribed a lot. So I think that the idea that the pendulum was swinging is the metaphor that was often used from globalization back towards nationalism, which was often openly described as a kind of like a Polanyian double movement where society sort of protects itself against the disruptions and the kind of disorientations that have been produced by its exposure to larger forces. I feel like Trump, especially in Brexit as well, was being sort of granted that status, that it was like a kind of, even if people were critical of it, it was being described as a kind of reflex of social self-protection. And Polanyi himself had said, sometimes that'll come from the left and sometimes it will come from the right. He was talking about fascism, which was indeed that kind of a withdrawal from global economies, from the global economy. But when I looked at that, just the simple party program and the kind of basic utterances of the advisors inside of the post-Brexit conservatives or the Trump administration, it was just like, are you kidding me? Like (laughs) anti-globalization? <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, yeah, the Brexit campaign, what did run under the campaign slogan of "Take Back Control" under Dominic Cummings is sort of like momentarily enlightened advice. But the original, you know, what the original slogan was was "Go Global." <laughs> like the exact. Opposite. <laughs> That's what they were going. They were going to run on that. Put it on like they would have. Been, they would have been slain. So yeah, they they succeeded, but only because they just completely misrepresented their position, and and had no sort of conditioning that was going to prepare them for pivoting to a more uh, nationally redistributive, inwardly based industrial policy. I mean, all they've been doing is failing to do that now for the last several years, uh, seven years it's now been since that actually happened. And the Trump was the same, right? I mean, it's the same Heritage Foundation ghouls, Cato people, all they wanted was new terms for better deals for their, domestic capital bosses. And that meant, you know, one kind of international economic law rather than the other. So when I started writing this, I think that was very, I could make that point very strongly. It was true in Germany and Austria too, like the alternative for Germany party was actually more capitalist than the Christian Democrats and so on. Since then, I mean, as with the alt-right, there has been, I think, more of a turn within those Parties. So now I think like the, the role of sort of Victor Orban, for example, as a kind of model suggests uh, that kind of possibility of combining global capital friendly policies with a more expansionary national welfareism, which has also been successful for, you know, Marine Le Pen, uh, Fratelli Italia party under Meloni is also much less kind of neoliberal in their policies and much more invested in kind of welfare chauvinism or kind of national, you know, redistributionism for a certain kind of citizen. So that I think is now a kind of, it's a version of right-wing politics that is circulating. The United States is a place where I feel like it keeps on being predicted as being insurgent without ever actually uh, appearing as far as I can tell. I mean, I don't see the national conservatism of someone like Josh Hawley or Marco Rubio as a real factor politically. I mean, I think we, the kind of pundit class, see its potential in certain ways. And so we keep on expecting it to kind of manifest. But like, where is it? It's nowhere. Where's Hawley? I mean, how many thousands of words have been printed about him for the amount of interest that he actually has from everyday voters? So... The I think that it's true that kind of in the ongoing mutations, like a J.D. Vance character or even a Blake Masters will kind of disavow their earlier affiliation with the kind of anarcho-capitalism, which I'm describing, which, by the way, like like Masters was like literally sending around like Hans Hermann Hoppe quotes to his like buddies at Stanford. So he very much came from that. They've decided that it's tactically Good to see to describe libertarianism as bad. Describe themselves as being anti-Cato, partially because this is like the Bannonite language, which seems to be more successful. But I will start to believe in kind of welfare chauvinism from the right when I actually see policies being cr- created, designed, and passed that um, make those kind of realities real, rather than just you know rhetorical possibilities.
0: Listeners have have likely been waiting for us to finally discuss the internet. And it was early on, in terms of mass internet culture, beginning in the late 90s, that that you write that anarcho-capitalists honed in on the internet as a tool to advance their authoritarian capitalist project. And a key text was The Sovereign Individual, How to Survive and Thrive During the Collapse of the Welfare State by William Reese Mogg, who I presume might be the son of the infamous right-wing tory Jacob Rees-Mogg but is actually his dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a it's a book that has appealed to really important figures in Silicon Valley Mark Andreessen, Peter Thiel, and to Andreessen's one-time colleague who you mentioned earlier Balaji Srinivasan. And you write that one thing that appealed to to anarcho-capitalists and to these Silicon Valley leaders about the book is that it offered an alternative to the so-called commune story of the internet, a story I discussed with Fred Turner a while back, which traces the rise of Silicon Valley from the -the back-to-the-land counterculture of Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Catalog through Wired Magazine to the present, when Fred Turner's book was published. But what sort of alternative story is this? Because the story that Turner tells is also a story about the rise of a certain techno-libertarianism. Are these two different facets of one Larger story, and and then how does their commitment to that version of the story? How does it help us make sense of the future that they imagine awaits us in a in a world that they hope will be will be redefined radically by by cryptocurrency and the metaverse?
1: It's a distinction that can be a little bit blurry for sure, but I think that you know, insofar as Turner wants to bring that story of the kind of the commune transforming over time up to something like Web 2.0, right? Like the way that social media continues to at least rhetorically claim that it's like a new commons, a place that we can all unite and share ideas collectively. The interesting thing about the people I write about is they like never entertain that thought.
0: They are not into the declaration of the independence of cyberspace. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) When John Perry Barlow was like, your laws don't
1: reach here, man. They're like, oh no, yeah, they totally do. No, the laws completely reach here. That's what's great <laughs> about property it. property
0: is is sac- is sacrosanct. Yeah, man. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> no, no, they're like they they. So I call it the property story against the commune story. Is they had the insight, which in fact was correct in some ways, that you could at least make certain kinds of ownership even more immune from state interference than sort of traditional. terrestrial property. And of course, cryptocurrency is the best example of that, the idea of creating a kind of something on a blockchain that is not located in any given state. But as Bitcoiners themselves, you know, to their great sadness, discover again and again, like the act of mining or even transacting in their currencies can indeed be regulated by terrestrial states. But from the late 90s, the interesting thing about the kind of anarcho-capitalist wing of the crypto libertarian community, is that they were trying to figure out the ways that structures of laws and new kind of institutions could be built online in a way that could you know evade and elude states not to produce a new commons, but to produce like an even more ironclad enclosed world of property and tradable commodities.
0: This is another example, I think, of the sort of capitalist realism, which finds its easy and really copacetic corollary in race, in the so-called race realism of the right that we see again and again in your book, which is that these other techno-libertarians have this pretense that the internet is going to be all about community when in fact it's all about property and profit. Mm -hmm. And your guys say, no, no, that's what it's about. No pretense. Right.
1: Exactly. Well, that's why I think that you know, i do I mentioned this earlier, but I think it was just because I was rereading the New Imperialism by Harvey recently, and I was thinking about how helpful his way of describing things is is that you know he said that there is on the one hand kind of the logic of capital, which is at least theoretically global or planetary, and which kind of operates in in happy dismissal of. Human borders, in the sense that it like reorganizes itself across them. It has spaces of intensity inside of them. It has no sort of drive towards like uniformity or evenness. And then there's the territorial logic, you know, which intersects with capital, which can sometimes work with it or against it to kind of create patterns where capitalism sometimes is works in a more abstract form. Well, this is, I think. You know, what is interesting about the the opening up of the terrain of the Internet to the kind of logic of capital is it for some people was like this invigorating thing where they're just like, oh, my God, like the territorial logic, which usually we had to kind of outsource to like governments and states is now something that we're kind of making ourselves, like we're making our new kind of empires, so to speak, in the relationships between websites or the relationships between blockchain-based currencies. And that is, you know, I think that at its most, if one wants to grant it its most kind of intellectual coherence, there is something that I can understand why would be sort of inspiring for them to think that they have opened up like truly like a second earth on which they can kind of map things out afresh. There's this, my favorite example of that is a web service that has divided the entire globe up into kind of like baseball field size quadrants. And you, through the app, you can buy one of these plots and you own it permanently. And what that means is you can like set anything up there. Like to so say you want to set up like a dancing panda bear like underneath the Eiffel Tower. It means that anyone who would use the app and point it up at the Eiffel Tower would see a dancing panda bear underneath it. And they uh they were so excited in the in the ad copy for this, they're like, We've made the we've made it possible to like monetize the entire earth. <laughs> it was like the kind of thing, it's like, wow, what a thing to be just like
0: super aroused by. Yeah. And uh, what if we told you that the entire earth has already been mostly <laughs> yeah. monetized? <laughs> yeah. Your book is about the world as it is today. And also, I think in certain ways, about the nature of our capitalist ruling class today. You write, quote, a hundred years ago, the robber barons built libraries. Today, they build spaceships what do we learn about the changing forms of capitalism that we live under by comparing capitalists from different eras by by contrasting say Elon Musk, Peter Thiel and Samuel Bankman-Fried against say Carnegie, Rockefeller and Ford
1: i think that that thing that i mentioned earlier which is like the need to keep alive enough of a population to be able to perform the necessary functions that, you know, will allow the sources of your profit to keep flowing.
0: A compulsion to invest in the social reproduction of the working class.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Like, I think that that
1: is, with the financialization of the economy has led, you know, the wealthiest capitalists become the ones who don't, sort of own the factories, but the ones who like intermediate between people who want to invest in people, other people who might want to invest in the companies. And the kind of asset manager capitalism model that someone like Brett Christophers or Benjamin Brown or Daniela Gabor have been doing such a good job at describing is is so indicative of this, right? I mean, the fact that someone like Larry Fink or Ken Griffin, the hedge fund manager, can make as much money when America is in a mode of globalization as they can when they're kind of pivoting towards like a just energy transition, because they just need to stand between, you know, the funder and the investor and the side of investment, I think just produces a kind of unreality effect for people like that, where the moment at which kind of the hands touch the machine sort of just becomes completely abstracted and they can sort of indulge in these fantasies of frictionlessness and and you know unimpeded movement and indeed escape and, and embublement and kind of embunkerment that seem not so far fetched because they don't ever have to kind of be confronted with the the, the ever failing machinery of the world that they're trying to make i mean i was just in pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago and i went to the um carry furnaces, which is like one of the the blast furnaces that had been built in nineteen oh five and then only went out of operation in nineteen seventy eight. And it's just an extraordinary thing to be I mean it's like it's sort of like being at the pyramids or something, right? Because you're you're looking at this thing and then the guy's like, and there were seven of these all there, six of these all the way down the river. And there's like an awesomeness to that, which I I struggle to imagine how like you know mark zuckerberg like looking at a visualization of the expansion of the social network or whatever would just have a completely different idea of what it means to be like a very very wealthy man in the world
0: well quinn slobodian thank you very much
1: thank you for the questions
0: Quinn Slobodian is a professor of the history of ideas at Wellesley College. He's the author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, and, most recently, the book we discussed today. Crack up capitalism, market radicals, and the dream of a world without democracy. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We're recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamooz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or Spotify or wherever, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So to spreading the word to your friends, please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.